Hi there! Here we are again, Dishcast. And we have a little celebration. And last week, I just want to thank you all because I put a little pitch out to say we're, we're close to 20,000 paid subscribers at the Weekly Dish. And, um, and I just had a kind of slight inkling that John Gray's podcast last week might get a few of you to pay up. And sure enough, we are now well over 20,000 paid subscribers. We now have over 140,000 people getting us every week altogether. That's a huge number of people. And we're almost three years into this. I think Chris and I, who've been doing this together, just want to thank you. I mean, it's, it's been an incredible ride. And when I was dispatched from New York Magazine, it did not seem as if, it seemed as if we were in a period in which those of us who weren't fully on board with the Cultural Revolution would be really basically thrown to the winds and but we 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 landed on our feet and I, and that's because of you guys and i know many of you don't agree with me about many things and that makes it to me all the more valuable that you still subscribe because we're here to listen to people we don't agree with that's that's or some of which we will agree with some of which we won't agree with and just keeping that alive keeping that enjoyment of difference which is how I understand diversity, just the enjoyment of other people being different than yourself. It's such a wonderful thing to do, and it's a great privilege, and you're making it possible, and I'm so grateful to all of you who've done that all along. I'm also grateful to all of you that write in. The emails we get every week, we always have. This has been about, this is from Daily Dish onwards. They're just incredibly thoughtful. They're smart. They're responsible. They're interested. They give me enormous hope for a liberal, by which I mean a small L liberal future of open debate and good humor, amusement, passion as well. No boring, milk toast consensus mongering here. But you can be, as I think Aurelian Kreitzu said only a few weeks ago, you know, moderation doesn't necessarily mean being boring. It doesn't mean being the middle of two wings. It means being able to think about the arguments of both sides and weigh them up and forth, weigh them back and forth and and realize that you yourself aren't entirely convinced of where you are at any particular moment. It could be pushed out of that position with a few new facts or a compelling argument. All of which is basically a, a preamble to say this week we have Kathy Young. Kathy, I, you know, we've all read Kathy for many, 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 many years. As I have. I used to think of her as a sort of reason, a libertarian writer. And I think she basically is, although now she's at the bulwark which maybe we could talk about a little bit. And she's a journalist and author, and she's at the Bulwark, staff writer now. That's Bill Crystal's, Crystal, Charlie Sykes's joint. She's a columnist for Newsday and a frequent contributor to Reason magazine. I, I think you can, on any of the major issues that you will come across, the divisive issues, Kathy will always provide an incredibly level-headed and fair summary of what's going on with her own position. I think she's Pretty peerless at that, Kathy, oh, to be wow. honest with you. Well, I mean, thank I, you. I, getting a click head already here. <laughs> well, you know, we, we butter you up to the beginning of the of the podcast so we can we can unbutter you later on. Before it, <laughs> real fireworks begin, right? Well, no. And uh, she's and written two books growing up. for years, by the way, and I've been a... It's all right. A don't time. worry. It's okay. <laughs> I, I, you don't need to reciprocate in any way. It's non-reciprocate. Yeah, it is. It is. It will be. And it, and it won't be because we won't. She's written two books, Growing Up in Moscow, Memories of a Soviet Childhood, Girlhood, sorry, 
and ceasefire, why women and men must join forces to achieve true equality. Just to give you a little heads up, next week we have John Oberg, the, the vegan. Also coming up, James Allison, the Catholic theologian, John Ward, the evangelical journalist, Michael Lind, sui generis, really, Michael Lind, and Mark Leonard, the great liberal political theorist. Kathy, welcome. How are you doing? I think you just got over a bit of a stomach bug. Yeah, I got by a stomach bug that was kind of annoying over the weekend, but I am almost over it, so we're good. And my apologies to readers. You probably hear my voice is a little off this week. I, I am still in the throes of the recovery from a sinus operation. My lungs are unbelievably bad right now. Oh, sorry um, so I'm hor- Yeah, well, it's I've been horizontal now for three days. It's my first time really out of bed. It just takes rest. The thing about lungs is that they're a very delicate organ and mine are particularly dreadful. And it's just taking some time to get past this. So if I'm a little bit under the weather today, if I'm not quite myself, please forgive me. I'm doing my best. I'm on a lot of prednisone right now and antibiotics and and various other inhalants. All of you who are chronic asthmatics will understand what I'm dealing with right now. But anyway, forgive me if I'm a little little not quite on form. But Kathy, one of the most fascinating things about you, I think, is that where you grew up and where you were born. So tell us, you were a little, I mean, people talk about red diaper kids in America, (laughs) but you were... You were in a you were in a place where they only had red diapers. Where everything was right? Red. Yeah, I yeah I tell me tell me how that really was. What what was it? Oh like my goodness! I wrote there? a whole book about it. I can't. You know, we'll be here for hours. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, really we'll go Tell detail. us, tell us if you yeah, were, well, I, you're meeting someone new. How would you explain it? Well, yeah, I I was born in Moscow in 1963, and I, you know, my family left in 1980, so it was a few years before the beginning of all the changes. And I'll tell you, by the way, that fact, like the fact that all these changes began just, you know, probably about seven years after we left, that really gives me hope, you know, when it seems like, oh, my God, you know, this trend that we all hate, you know, it's never going to change. It's here forever. You know, I remember that at one point, like when my parents were discussing whether we should emigrate, my dad said very confidently, nothing is ever going to change here. I mean, look at this, you know, this, you know, Leviathan, that's, you know, never going to go away. And of course... You know, we, ten years later, it it sort of did. I was I had the fascinating experience. By the way, I traveled to Moscow several times between 1990 and 1994. So I was I was doing some work that was related to you know journalism, obviously, and so I was really there in the midst of all the changes. And I was actually heading back to the U.S. on the day. In 1991, I guess, right, the day in 1991 that they signed the agreement, basically dissolving the Soviet Union. And I still remember I was on the plane and this American guy who was sitting next to me showed me the Herald Tribune and said, do you know that the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore? You know, here. (laughs) So it was really quite amazing. But yeah, what was it like? Because I was was a child sort of in the, at the height of the Brezhnev era, which is now known, you know, retroactively as the stagnation years, which it sort of was because, again, it really felt like, you know, this is all there is, like. 
it's never going to change. My family was very much sort of closet dissidents, essentially. I mean, I... Uh, what does that, that mean? What did your dad, what did your parents do? Uh, my parents were both trained as musicians. My mom worked, was a teacher at one of the two leading professional music schools in Moscow, the Central Music School, which was, you know, it was a prestige position, you know, by, by, by Soviet standards, certainly. And really, by, at least economically, by Soviet standards, we really did have a pretty good life. I mean, the mere fact that we were in Moscow already put us above, you know, basically like 95% of the population, I guess. We had a three-room apartment that we didn't share with another family because at the time it was still pretty common for two families to share an apartment. When my dad was growing up, I think there were like seven families sharing one apartment, which had in pre-revolutionary times had obviously been some affluent person's apartment with you know, eight rooms or something. Now it was like one family per room, one bathroom, you know, it was, you know, I, I, And your, your father was a professional musician yeah, my as father well. was, a, was a trained violinist, but mostly he worked as a sound engineer for Soviet radio. And he also sometimes played as a guest, guest music, a substitute, I guess, with the Moscow Symphony Orchestra. He actually traveled abroad two or three times. And my dad had some interesting stories because he was in London with the Moscow Symphony Orchestra in 1968 on the day that Soviet troops invaded Czechoslovakia. And that was quite an experience because they were being protested. And I think when, like, before the concert began, like, all of the audience basically stood up and turned their backs, I think, as an expression of protest. It's sort of reminiscent of some of the stuff that's going on now with Ukraine. And my dad just felt horrible because, you know, he was completely against what was happening. And he basically son later like if he didn't have a family back home he would have defected you know then and there because it just felt like you know on top of everything else like so, this was happening now so, so yeah yeah what, what's that well what's that like kathy you're you're a child you're growing up both your parents by virtue mainly of just being musicians and nonetheless because they are part of the state apparatus, they're being paid by the state apparatus. Have how would you know their closet dissident? I mean, well, at what level the was there... that we had at home? Yeah, I mean, I was. Tell us, tell me about that. Like how well, how did yeah. they how did that right. evolve? Well, and where did that come from? Where was their dissident? Where did uh, that originate? Yeah. Well, so unlike the majority of children in the Soviet Union, I never went to daycare because well. well Partly because my mom's mother was living with my family. So, you know, she was sort of the, the caregiver when my parents were at work. So because of that, I never had any exposure as a child to the sort of Soviet propaganda that was, you know, that was very much present in, in daycare. I didn't even know. Yeah, daycare is where it all school. starts, right? I'm sorry? Daycare is where the indoctrination oh, yeah, yeah. starts. It, it, that was definitely where it started. So I actually have an amusing story where I, I literally didn't know who Vladimir Lenin was until I went to school, which was kind of unthinkable. And when I was, I think, probably six years old, this is kind of like a famous story from family law. I, I went into a store, like probably a food store with my grandmother, 
and there was a bust of Lennon standing on a shelf on the store. And suddenly I go like at the top of my voice, Grandma, who is that weird little guy? And well, what, why is he up there? And my grandmother was like, hey, we're getting out of here quickly. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> Terrible. So, yeah, I literally didn't know who Lennon was. So that at the age of seven, you know, I started school and then I started coming home with comments like, oh, you know, I didn't even realize how lucky I am that we live in the Soviet Union because, you know, everywhere else in the world, people are oppressed by the capitalists, but we, you know, and that is when like my dad especially started very, you know, systematically sort of telling me not to believe the stuff that we're being told at school and really yeah, yeah oh now tell me just tell me about him because where did he get that oh. sense like where where was so because this is it's important because because uh, I'm, I'm always fascinated by how air gets into hermetically sealed places oh, well i think you know part, uh, of, part of it was simply the fact that my dad's parents were on the gulag when he was a boy and that's a whole other story because my 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 family is jewish well my my mother is sort of technically under you know jewish law isn't jewish because you know my maternal grandmother was ethnically russian and uh, you know of christian background uh my dad's uh my my mother's father was jewish and my uh, my father's family was uh ethnically completely jewish nobody was religious anymore by the time that i was growing up obviously but in so he had memories of his own parents being yeah, in the, in in the, the 19 in the in the late 1940s my grandparents were part of because there was sort of a bit of a zionist you know i don't want to say you know blossoming but there was some zionist interest in in the soviet union because in the beginning you know the soviet union was not like as hostile to israel as it was later because i i don't know if you know that golda Meir was actually the israeli envoy to the soviet union and she met with some Jews, it was sort of officially permitted because I think Stalin initially had hopes that Israel was going to be like in the Soviet camp, so to speak, because it had all these you know socialist leanings, and he, you know, despite his I think very well documented anti-Semitism, I think he did have hopes that it was going to be sort of a Soviet outpost to some extent. Then it didn't work out that way, and a lot of the people who had met with Golda Meir were sent to the Gulag. And my grandparents were part of a group that I think was actually working on getting smuggled out to Israel. And there was an informer in the group, as you know, very often happened in the Soviet Union. I think the the general belief was that, you know, if you have like more than five people gathering, one of them is going to be a, a, a KGB or at the time NKVD informer. Anyway, so they got routed out. And in 1947, my grandparents were both sent to the Gulag. The only reason my dad, my dad was 11 at the time. He also had a younger brother. The only reason they didn't go to an orphanage and the orphanages were really, really horrific places is that they had an older half sister from his mother's first marriage, who was an illegally an adult and was able to be their caregiver. 
and who had not been part of the parents' group. So, you know, and she wasn't, you know, they didn't touch her and she was able to, you know, keep her two younger brothers, half-brothers on the house. But, you know, a lot of them, them a lot of relatives, like my dad had the experience of, you know, walking down the street and seeing a relative and the relative crossing the street because they didn't want to have anything to do with somebody, not because they had like real, you know, principled objections to whatever his parents had done, but you just really didn't want to be in any kind of contact with somebody whose parents were group. What happened? What happened to your grandparents? Oh, they came, they, they were released after they were in, they were, I, I believe they were in the gulag for six years. They came out because Stalin died. And my father, like, interestingly enough, because there were people who, whose parents or even who they themselves were in the gulag who still maintained the faith that, you know, communism was great and Stalin was the good guy. Uh, my father, I think my father was really, you know, he passed away, unfortunately, about 10 years ago. He was always an incredibly independent thinker. And I think he was, uh, you know, even from childhood, I think he sort of realized early on that this country was, you know, not a paradise. And, and he and my mother went to the same school. They they went to this uh, professional music school. And my mother remembers that when Stalin died, some of the other kids were saying about my father, like, look at him, what a jerk. Like, he's not even pretending to be upset. Like, he's looking, you know, he's walking around looking like nothing happened. And it's just a great day. And yeah, I actually just had a piece of the bulwark, I don't know if you saw it about Stalin, because it was just the 70th anniversary of, of his death, like on, on Sunday. And my father also had a great story, which kind of shows you that like not everyone in the Soviet Union was incredibly in love with Stalin and you know, passionately mourning him. He and a friend were um, just walking down the street and there was a drunk guy because, of course, drunkenness was always a big life was kind of stumbling along and he came up to them and tried to hit them up for money and my dad says well you know look at you like stone just died and all you can think of is you know getting some money from more booze and the guy who was incredibly drunk just looked at them and said stone died well fuck him <laughs> you know yeah, obviously it's not something he would have said if he had been sober but you know but it kind of shows you that you know, life persists even that's how Tarian Yeah, it is it is it does dissidents, I think, from that point on. And you know, and I think a lot of people have like my my maternal grandmother, I will tell you a story about if if you have another minute to spend on that. I'll tell oh, you yeah. an interesting story about my maternal grandmother, who I think was in some way like very naive about the extent to which any sort of independent thinking was dangerous. But my mother, when she was, you know, went through a period of thinking that Stalin was this, you know, kind father to the entire people, because that's what they were big taught in school. And she knew that a lot of other families had Stalin portraits in their living room or, well, in in you know, what living room. It was one room in most cases, which was, you know, living room, bedroom, dining room, all in one, maybe two if you were very lucky. I think my, my mother's family had two rooms in an apartment with, again, several families. So my mother comes home from school one day, I think she was probably 12, you know, carrying a portrait of Stalin and going like, I'm going to hang this up on the wall. And my grandmother says, you know, let's not. And I was like, what? Why? Like, why would we not like hang up a portrait of Stalin? And my grandmother says, you know, I just really don't care for this like worship of leaders. Like when I was growing up, 
before the revolution, my family never had a portrait of the Tsar in their house. And I don't really want to have a portrait of Stalin. And my mom was like, what? You can compare? How could you compare the Stalin, you know, Stalin to the Tsar? And, you know, and of course she was yelling and loudly enough that a neighbor could have heard it. And, you know, and my grandmother probably would have, you know, easily could have ended up on the Gulag too. But, you know, I think my grandmother, again, was somewhat naive and didn't quite realize like what kind of system she was living in. She also, like at one point when a neighbor of theirs got arrested on accusations of, you know, being a saboteur or whatever, my grandmother was kind of going around saying, well, I don't know. I just really don't believe that he's a saboteur. It just seems really strange to me. Like, oh, why? And again, somehow very luckily for her, like no one reported her, which is kind of amazing. Because I could have probably ended up yeah, with it, some it, grandparents in the gulag. <laughs> That's... Yeah. But yeah, so my family kind of had this history of independence thought. And my dad, I think by the time that I was growing up, my dad was probably already like reading Samizdat. I mean, I remember by the time that I was like 10 or 11, I remember seeing like the gulag archipelago in the house, which was you know, very, very forbidden. There, there were always these, I mean, there, there, there was Samizdat, which was basically type, typewritten manuscripts, which were often these carbon copies that were barely legible. And then there were books published abroad. So, you know, I mean, by the time that I was a teenager, I was, you know, I was reading banned books already. So, you know, banned books are really not a new thing to me. <laughs> yeah. No. Which books in particular actually did have a, a real impact on you as a teenager. Well, I mean, I think the Gulag Archipelago certainly did in terms of just, you know, opening my eyes to, you know, what what Soviet history was like. I remember, now, I don't know if you've heard of Vladimir Voinovich, who was a great, you know, and I actually got to know him much, much later. I interviewed him. He died a few years ago, but I was able to interview him a couple of times think in 2015 and 17 and you know he was he had some wonderful satires of soviet life which were really just amazingly kind of insightful and funny like incredibly funny also so you know those are two people i would name there were some other books that were sort of histories of the gulag there any english language books yeah because I read, I read in English a lot. I mean, I I was very, very much into because I went to to a school that specialized in English from age seven, oh, and really? I was yeah, and I was kind of doing a lot of my own reading. So I was I was usually like several grades ahead of everybody else. And like at one time, like my English teacher at one point just said, "Ah, you don't really have to bother with that." She was very liberal, especially by Soviet standards. She just said, "You know, you don't even really have to do anything in class. Just." You know, take your books, sit there and read and you know, we'll do something else because we're all like, you know, three grades behind you. But yeah, I was I was doing a lot of reading in English. And I was also I'll tell you another little story that is kind of an interesting story of descent. In a way, I also knew French because my grandmother was a French teacher, my maternal grandmother, and she started teaching me French when I was little. And when I was really like 12, 13. I got really into the history of the French Revolution. And there was a library in Moscow, which was far away. I had to go like, you know, I had to take like the metro and like two buses or something 
to get to this library. But they had books. They had a lot of, it was like a foreign language of library. And they had a lot of books published abroad. And they had a lot of French literature on the history of the French Revolution. And it's interesting because in official Soviet history, the French Revolution was always treated as a kind of precursor of the Russian Revolution. And it was all written in this very sort of ideologically correct standpoint where, you know, Robespierre was the good guy and, you know, you really could not question, I mean, the the reign of terror, yes, that was like completely justified because it was, you know, reprisals against class enemies and it was about saving the revolution. And it was just interesting because, you know, you couldn't get any books, you know, except through like underground channels. You couldn't get any books in the Soviet Union that questioned the Russian Revolution. But the library, the, this foreign languages library, had a lot of French history books on the French Revolution written in, you know, for starting with the 19th century. And it was this great 19th century French historian had a has this wonderful history of the French Revolution, which, you know, is... is it's not very reliable in many ways, but it's beautifully written. I just really devoured that. And it was, again, it was kind of a fascinating experience to see this whole different point of view and to see that yeah. what we were being fed at school and what was allowed in Soviet literature was just, you know, painfully, not only inadequate, but actually distorting. But I'm thinking of you as a, as a, as a teenage girl, woman, a young woman, you would be reading these books about, you know, these French books about the French Revolution and see multiple ways in which it could yeah. be criticized. Now, where did you, where did you go with that? Did you, did you go to your parents and talk oh, about sure, that? Yeah. Did you, well, you know, did you, my parents and I had conversations. Yeah. And, but you must've been very leery of talking to your peers. About yeah, definitely. I think there were maybe like one or two people that I could very carefully talk to. It's interesting because in one sense, like a lot of people at school, pretty much everyone told kind of forbidden jokes, like Brezhnev jokes were very freely told, basically. Give me a couple of Brezhnev jokes, if you can. Oh, sure, sure. Them. Yeah. I mean, the Brezhnev jokes were mostly, I mean, they're, they're actually very NPC today because they were mostly okay, making fun of him. Please, it's a safe space. Yeah, yeah no, it's a I'm, safe I'm, space. I'm just pointing out the irony because most of the, a lot of the Brezhnev jokes were making fun of his slurred speech, which was the result of a stroke. So, you know, it probably wasn't very nice, but hey, you know, he was Brezhnev. He, I mean, the, the, he, he spoke, but he definitely did slur his speech by that. And people, you know, I mean, those jokes are kind of untranslatable because they're, they're puns. Like, yeah. And he could have been drunk, of course. Here's a joke where, and this is just making fun of the fact that he was always reading front paper. So, yeah. So, Brezhnev asks his assistant to give him a, a speech 15 minutes long. And the assistant brings him the speech, and Brezhnev goes to the meeting, and then he calls in his assistant and says, you know, what happened? I asked you for a speech 15 minutes long. I read that thing for 45 minutes. And the assistant says, oh, my God, Leonid Ilyich, I gave you three coffees of that. <laughs> so <you> know, <laughs> that, was, that was one joke or joke. And, and you know, I, I think that should sort of give you a general sense of, you know, what the jokes were. So it comes to a meeting of the Politburo and somebody says, well, Leonid Ilyich, you're wearing 
one brown shoe and one black. You really should go back to your apartment and change. So, you know, he goes back and then he comes back still in the same shoes. And, uh, you know, whoever pointed out to him says, what happened? And he says, well, I don't know. I found the same thing. One brown shoe and one black. <laughs> so, you know, it, it was basically just sort of, you know, Brezhnev is a complete moron jokes. And, right, uh, it, right. you know, so, so there were a lot. It gives me hope. Do you think, do you think, here's a question, because I, I think about totalitarian states, you know, I think about. And I think that humor was subversive, by the way, because even if, and I was going to oh, say, yeah. you know, most of the kids who told those jokes weren't really thinking about the fact that, you know, they were, I mean, nobody, none of them, I think, were very few of them were deliberately questioning anything about the Soviet system. But I think the mere fact that they were telling these jokes and that they were mocking the system in a way, I think was something, you know, so that... Yeah, no, it's humor, the the humor, humor's ability to sort of crack through things where nothing mm-hmm. else will. Oh, absolutely. Incredibly encouraging in some ways. It's It's the, you know, I'm reminded of Orwell's the great comment about why England never went fascist, which was that... If the English saw a, a, a military unit goose stepping down the street, they would giggle. Oh yeah, because it just the looks of silly. silly walks, right? <laughs> well, yes. Well, the military of silly walks was, you know, it, it was created by the communists essentially, or the fascists in their yeah. absurd, yeah. silly marching. But I, I sort of part of me wonders, like, how do you, in these in these moments of terrible totalitarian control? What, where does the sun, where in North Korea, do you think in North Korea someone is making jokes? Oh my goodness, Or do you think that they have completely obliterated the human spirit in that place? Yeah, I know, because I I think, like, North Korea, just from everything that we hear of it, I mean, I think that's a whole different level of control than Mm -hmm. it was. Mm -hmm. Like, even in the Soviet Union under Stalin, I don't think there was that degree of just regimentation and, like, control over day-to-day life it becomes more like a sort of cult in which everyone like an armed cap that everyone is living in you know in in the Soviet Union when I was growing up I think I mean it was definitely a totalitarian system and there were all these expectations of conformity the thing is I think by that time it was in a way a totalitarian system that was running out of steam you know so I think everyone was still expected to, for instance, demonstrate loyalty to the system. Everyone in any workplace, for instance, there were these, I think, weekly, they were called political education sessions that everyone had to attend. And, you know, people... They were, they were, they were the pioneers of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Right? <laughs> you could say that. And we had them at school. We had these like weekly class meetings with a teacher who served as our sort of ideological guidance counselor, so to speak, and who, you know, lectured us on, you know, the proper Soviet spirit. And, you know, and we all kind of made so, fun of her because she was this frumpy person who was, you know, grumbling about, you know, girls wearing makeup and stuff. like Because, you know, that was the amazing thing about the Soviet Union, by the way, it was extremely socially conservative. That was like the official system. I think in the early days of the revolution, yeah, there was a kind of, you know, sexual revolution going along with that. But later, I mean, under Stalin, things became very, very conservative. And of course, you know, homosexuality was uh, at the time, like, legally like, outlawed. And it 
not quite, I mean, it wasn't really like the sodomy laws in America, which were almost never enforced and where you, you know, were very seldom enforced, I think. And you also had to pretty much like catch someone in the act, right? To, or at least have some evidence that like a specific sexual act occurred. In the Soviet Union, like I, I didn't know this uh, this person personally, but like a friend of someone I knew was like literally sent to the labor camps for being gay because, and he really was gay. But I mean, the only evidence against him was that a neighbor had seen him like a few times bring a male friend home overnight, which you know, technically, like hey, you know, they could have just been sitting there watching TV or whatever. But, you know, and and I think there were like the the the, the level of evidence was just astounding because one of the other things like there were literally people who testified that they had never known him to date a woman. So like, of course, you know, he doesn't date women. He brings a male friend home overnight. Well, you know, send him to the, the to the labor camps. So, yeah. And that was I mean, it didn't happen that often, I think, because and there were some and it was weird also because, again, like by that time, the level, I guess, double sync was pretty amazing because like in the music world where my parents circulated, there were some people who were fairly openly gay, like Sventoslav Richter, you know, the great, the great Soviet pianist, like pretty much everybody knew he was gay. You know, he was married to a lesbian, by the way, who, I mean, they were sort of each other's beards, essentially. And that was, that was often yeah, the, yeah. that was often the way yeah, out. Yeah. And, you know, but it was very widely known. My dad had a gay roommate in college who was pretty much like out to his friends, you know, but, you know, he did run certain risks, like being fairly out to his friends. So yeah, it was a very, very socially conservative society. And I, I mean, I, I have a funny, story that again like so many things relate to like the things that we discuss and you know in america today i have a well i was gonna say a drag queen story hour story but it's not really quite up to that level so at one point we and i think i was maybe like 12 years old so we had a like several kids from several schools like gathered local like pioneer so yeah, this was the young pioneers, you know, the sort of Soviet equivalent of the scouts, I guess. So there was some sort of pioneer gathering at like the local you know, children's palace. They always love to call these things like workers' palaces and children's palaces and so on. So it was just this huge center. And there was a sort of amateur, you know, creativity concert where, among other things, like there was this challenge where people were given like several words to use to improvise a little play, a little skit and put it on. And one of the words was princess, which, by the way, kind of gives you an idea that by that time, Again, the ideological control wasn't really strict because a lot of their like fairy tales with princesses were totally fine. It wasn't like, you know, royalty was completely unmentionable. So, you know, we were doing the skit with the word princess. I think it was like princess and pirates. So there was obviously like this sort of adventure storyline there. In our group, so we had these, we had this competition where the kids were split into different groups that were doing these skits. And our group decided that it would be a lot of fun if the princess was played by a boy. So, you know, one of the boys, like, you know, made himself a skirt out of a scarf and, like, put something on his head that was supposed to represent, like, being a friend, like a veil or something, or, uh, you know, something like that. And 
some of the teachers were really pissed off. Like our, like the history teacher, our history teacher who sort of escorted our group to this gathering, it came up to us later and said, no, creativity is all very good, but you know, you really shouldn't let it like run too wild and, you know, just, you know, watch what you're doing. And she was obviously referring to, you know, the boy being a princess. And she had this really unhappy look on her face. So, you know, that was kind of, that was really funny. And is this one of the things that I find interesting, and it's one of the things I wanted to tease out with you a little bit, is that is that Russia and the Soviet Union are two obviously separate things. Okay, yeah. Um, and yes, yeah. let me let me just let me just unpack this Absolutely. a little bit, Kathy, because because the the social conservatism of Eastern Europe and Russia is still extraordinarily intense. I mean, it's a very conservative socially culture. It seems to be they have a very different response in many ways to many of the things that have happened in the yeah. West. And disentangling what is Russian mm. from what is Soviet is is hard. Now, people like me, you know, in the 70s and 80s and 90s, specifically the 90s, really did want to believe that in some ways the Soviet Union had been a kind of terrible cancer on Russia itself and had destroyed Russia's own culture, its own identity. And of course, this is partly Solzhenitsyn's perspective yeah. as well, that you will not find among those Russian dissidents, in fact, today, you know, many of those former Russian dissidents are really extraordinarily Russian nationalists and Russian imperialists. There is a continuity. Solzhenitsyn here. became one uh, by the end of his life. I mean, he, he had of course he did. Yes, Solzhenitsyn, Solzhenitsyn would have been fully in favor of the occupation of Ukraine. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. 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 So I'm, it's, 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 it's kind of one of the things that I've had to try and figure out in all of this is to what extent were we dealing with the paradoxes and difficulties and challenges of a Soviet socialist communist system? And to what extent are we dealing with a sort of eternal thing called Russia that, that exists and has existed in different forms that has a certain mm -hmm. kind of cultural coherence? Sure even a spiritual identity through the through the centuries that that, that that we kind of let me just yeah. finish let me just finish Kathy, yeah. that we kind That's of right. misjudged in the 90s we kind of looked at it as if oh well, now we've cured it of this it's now just going to become a central european country or something or it's going to become a democracy to what extent was that delusional on our part and to what extent did that delusion help destroy the russian state Ah, well, that's a really good question. I mean, I think that Russia, like the other societies in the region, Russia is incredibly complicated. I mean, Russia, the Russia that we know, like even going back to the, let's say, 19th century, in a sense, is a creation of sort of the amalgamation of this traditional, you know, Russian Orthodox, extremely conservative, isolated Russia, you know, the Russia that goes back to, you know, Ivan the Terrible, you know, things like that. And the European influences that started to come in in the, in the 18th century. Because, you know, Russia, in one sense, Russia was hugely influenced by European culture. And of course, in another sense, there are vast layers of Russia outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg that are basically, you know, almost untouched by European culture. And I mean, but boy, like if you want to start unpacking this, 
I mean, you know, to what extent is this similar to the cosmopolitan versus, you know, locally rooted and much more conservative, you know, contrasts in large parts of Europe? I mean, I don't know. It's Yes, but the, the, the sort of, I don't know how to describe it. And this is because it comes... It comes to the fore in the question of with Ukraine, of course, because there you seem to have different worldviews colliding, different whole sort of Weltanschauung, just completely different. That in fact, you have a sort of Western understanding of the nation state with, with negotiated right. boundaries that are, that are clear. And you have Russia's sense, let me just try yeah, and practice if you have to respond yeah. to it. You have Russia's sense that Ukraine, the word Ukraine means the border. It's a borderland of some kind between us and, and Europe. It, it's, 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 and we came from there in part and it's all muddled up because at some point Poland and Lithuania were involved in that part. It's a very complicated, constant withdrawing of populations into some, but it's, but the Russians understood it to be sort of theirs, essentially. And when, when the Soviet Union collapses and we, we go on and we do the right thing, which is to defend these separate nations that had been completely destroyed and subsumed within Russia, within the Soviet system itself, we maybe came out with a, a blueprint that was just simply not very recognizable to the Russian psyche, that, that, that how could they understand a completely independent state? of Ukraine right on their borders, taking decisions, making, making, making their own path into the world, irrespective of Russia's concerns or irrespective. Did we, did we just simply misread to some extent how Russia's un Russia understands sovereignty, how it understands Russia itself, how it understands its, its eternal presence in these, in these Eastern European and Central European zones? Right. Well, I, I guess the question is, first of all, what is Russia? I mean, Russia is a collection of you know, millions of people. Uh, secondly, mm -hmm. you know, I do want to point out that you know, looking back, it would be sort of a mistake, I think, to say that, oh, you know, the West really encouraged all these independence movements. I mean, if you remember at the time, you know, George H.W. Bush, you know, the first Bush was really not very supportive of the Ukrainian independence. You remember no, he the, wasn't. the no, famous Chink of Kiev speech in which, you know, he went to Kiev and basically said, you know, we support your aspirations for freedom, but, you know, we really would like to see all of the peoples of the Soviet Union, you know, work for a free society together. And I think there was a very widespread belief in the American foreign policy community that, you know, the breakup of the Soviet Union would cause way too much instability. And it's funny because, of course, for years after that, everybody thought, well, that didn't happen. And, you know, well. <laughs> well, yeah, it yeah. turns out they weren't entirely wrong, were they? Because let me tell you, in terms of what the actual population thinks, I, mean, I think most of the, because there were polls at the time, most of the population of Russia, I think, was fine with Ukraine being independent. And I mean, I will tell you that I have studied, like I, I've looked at Russian opinion polls and they are very, very dependent. They are very, very influenced by the official propaganda line, unfortunately. Like if you look at, for instance, what people tell pollsters about, you know, whether they think of America as a friendly nation or a hostile one, you can really map it, as some people pointed out, with, you know, trends in the official propaganda, uh, right. you know, 
outlook. So I think that... One can see American attitudes towards Russia in the last 10 years, for example, the way in which the parties <laughs> have completely oh, swapped yeah, sides yeah. as yeah. also yeah, no, much course. more to do with American domestic politics yeah. than any actual assessment of what's really happening. Absolutely, here. yeah. But I don't think it's entirely fair to blame Russia's turn away from, you know, whatever liberal path that may have been on in the early 90s on Putin. Obviously, part of it had to do with, you know, the fact that it was incredibly difficult to make the transition, for one thing, from this, you know, top-down state-managed society to a market economy. And I think that was a big part of it. You know, there was, I mean, yes, there were people, and I spoke to some of those people who basically said, oh, you know, it's really just a shame that, you know, we're not respected on the world anymore and we're not not the strong power that we used to be. But it's funny because I remember talking to a Moscow taxi driver who was sort of going on about that. And then he actually said, you know what? I mean, if I had a good life, I wouldn't really give a shit about any of that. But I mean, look at us, you know. <laughs> you know. Well, that's also part of the site. You certainly see today, and I don't know whether it does seem as if the the attempted invasion or partial invasion of Ukraine is quite popular in Russia. And it's 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 quite hard. I mean, it seems genuinely so. Oh, um, I, now I obviously, that's, that's that, fed by propaganda. <laughs> there is a lot of propaganda, but there is something here that, that certainly seems to be, um, Putin seems confident that the message that we deserve to control at least part of Ukraine is a popular message. Well, let, let me respond to that, because I think, first of all, it's very difficult to even rely on polls because I think, it, mm-hmm. you know, there's been, a, first of all, one thing that I read that kind of blew my mind, and I'm not sure how it compares to here, but like apparently the response rate in telephone surveys in, in Russia at this point is like 10%, like 90% when, when somebody calls and says, I'm doing a poll, they just hang up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I, I, I don't know how and to interpret this or understand it. And I, I don't think, think anybody really knows. People are generally afraid, like when somebody calls them, and I think oh, yeah, right. people have said that. You know, people in Russia still sort of associate, especially since some of the biggest polling agencies are, you know, affiliated with the state, and you know, they really do not trust assurances that oh, this is all completely private and nobody's going to know, you know, who gave what answer. No, no, I understand. And of I understand. Now I don't they want have to... all the draconian laws that punish. But it doesn't feel, at least most of the people that I, most of the people I'm reading and, and trying to figure out what's happening over there, it doesn't feel there's a big public revulsion against this no, world that's but, growing. It doesn't feel yeah. that that that's happening. That and I just no, let me, let what me, I want. Yeah, I just point out one thing because yeah, no, there is yeah. no big wave of public revulsion. You're completely correct, but there is also no like wave of popular support either. I mean, people have, and I do think, by the way, that when Russia annexed Crimea. That was different because I think at that time there really was a very genuine kind of upsurge of like patriotic pride and like, oh, you know, like the Crimea is ours because Crimea was the sort of it's funny because I think for a lot of people like back in the Soviet days, you know, Crimea was the sort of status symbol of this, you know, the school place where you went on vacation, you know, so in a way that was sort of. And it was, and as a region, it's very pro-Russian. It's yeah, very you know, it's, yeah, uh, Russian. And, and it's I think different that's than a genuinely complicated issue. And I think there was there was mm-hmm. genuine support in Crimea for for joining Russia. I think that is true. 
and mm-hmm. I, yeah, and I think in Russia there really was like I think a, a, a lot of people at the time were you know putting these you know Crimea is ours bumper stickers on their cars. I am told that today, and, and you know this is pretty much the consensus. There are really almost no spontaneous expressions of support for the war. Like there are mm-hmm. no, virtually no. I mean, unless it's like you know people who work for the propaganda channels. Like nobody puts you know the letter Z. That's the symbol of the special operation. I still have no idea why. By the way, and I mean, like, why do you pick a letter from the Latin alphabet to symbolize this Russian patriotic operation? I, I have no idea. Anyway, so yeah, like nobody, people are not spontaneously like wearing Z pins or putting right. them on a course. I mean, how many people have volunteered to fight in Ukraine? I mean, they're they're going no. the other way mostly. Like the people right. uh, I mean, Well when you are when you are when you're relying upon mercenaries from prisons yes, exactly. to to be pushed into essentially World War One I, I know death traps in this there's this unbelievable I mean, I've read the story. It's a extraordinary story. And I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, if I remember correctly, of of, of Varg, the Wagner yeah, group just, just just cynically providing this this funnel of of bodies yeah. essentially yeah. to tie up the Ukrainians Basically. in one spot right. to prevent right. an, a, a spring offensive, which can't go on forever, but Nonetheless, no, it does seem to be working that, temporarily. You know, in, in, in the year 2022-23, we're seeing like a replay of the greatest hits of World War One, right? So we are, and it's absolutely in the same horrifying way. I mean, the sheer carnage of this kind of warfare. Very hard for people to imagine. I recommend, by the way, All Quiet on the Western Front. This, yeah, this, this movie that came out last year from Germany, which is a, it's a, it's a, it's an, it's an extraordinarily good movie, but mainly because it really makes you recognize mm-hmm. what happened in 1914 to 18, mm-hmm. what, what happened to the psyche of Europe in watching that shit happen. And, and the, sh- what is happening currently, this is a war of such Horror. I mean, it oh, really it is, is it horror. And I don't know if you've this seen is, like is... any of the videos that are made by these, you know, Russian constructs pleading for help, you know, basically saying, you know, oh, oh, we were sent to Ukraine. They told us that we were going to be part of a defense force, but instead we were sent, you know, untrained and, you know, with no proper uniforms, hardly with any weapons, with no food. We were, we're told to storm these fortified you know, Ukrainian area. It's trench warfare. It's classic trench warfare from World War One. It's yeah. passionate. This is what killed so many people. Now, at some point, they're going to run out of human beings to throw into these trenches. Now, here's what I'm fascinated by. What happens if the Russians begin, the line begins to crack? Is if, if, if the Ukrainians do manage to make some advances in Donbass region, what happens? I mean, I am nervous for a couple of reasons. One, because in the in the words of H.W. Bush, you know, that kind of really considerable instability in that right. part of the world is a is a very is a worry is a dangerous thing. It, it, it's one doesn't want to see this spiral into something catastrophic, and it could, I think, quite quite clearly. At the same time, I can't, I I just try and put my head around how a Russian government of any kind, any kind, mm-hmm. is capable of adjusting to this because. You know the, op- the the main opposition within the elites in Russia seems to me to the, the more hardliners, the ones that are actually even more out of it than 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 Putin. Seems I think to be. they're the ones that uh, are getting that are making themselves heard. I mean, my understanding is that a lot of the 
you know, the so-called oligarchs, you know, the, the billionaires are incredibly pissed off at Putin, you know, quietly because, you know, like they got their villas and, you know, on the Asia coast seized under the sanctions and like you know it's i mean you know, what do you what do you when you think ahead what you hope because you know a lot of these people like the people in putin's inner circle uh and putin himself his daughters were working in europe you know until uh, until the war began so all of these people you know they're very much like plugged into these sort of international jet set scene like they're hanging, they were hanging out with you know Jared and Ivanka, you know, until recently. So, but then I think of a person like Medvedev, right? So yeah, Medvedev did seem, yeah. Well, he he did seem at some level kind of slightly westernized at, at some point, and and was regarded as a kind of technocratic character yeah, yeah. at some point in his career. It turns out he's he's an unbelievable. He's a psycho. He's a complete. A complete Russian national. What I, I guess what I'm saying yeah, is, that yeah. Can I tell I'm you one that, Which it's not really mine, but I heard it from this. There, there's a great. I mean, I'll tell you about it. One of the really, and I almost hesitate to say great things because you know this war is such a complete tragedy. But there are so many interesting, like Russian expatriate analysts that are doing this great stuff on YouTube. So there, there is this guy named Stanislav Bilkovsky, who at one point was apparently like a. Kremlin, like political advisor, who has, I think he worked with Medvedev at one point. So, and he's now, you know, doing his own show on YouTube. I, I think he actually lives in Ukraine now, interestingly enough. Like he moved there after the start of the war, which is an interesting direction to go. But anyway, so his theory, and I, I, I kind of find it plausible. He says that Medvedev really did believe, like when he became president, and I think he didn't, Bilkovsky says that he didn't realize at first that he was just being used as this puppet, you know, to, you know, serve out one term so that Putin could make an end run around the constitutional prohibition on more than two terms and come back. And he said Medvedev really did think that he was going to be this great, like, historical figure, this liberator who was going to turn Russia in a liberal direction and everybody was going to love him. And then when Putin made it clear to him that, hey, you know, that ain't happening. And by the way, like, I'm coming back in the next election. It just broke him. I mean, that's what Bilkovsky thinks. And he actually knew the guy. Mm. And he says that, you know, mm. he doesn't know to what extent Medvedev really believes this shit that he is. And I mean, Medvedev is writing stuff like, you know, we're fighting against the powers of the Lord of Hell, who is, you know, being served by No, Jesus. I mean, Medvedev, is, he, he, he's, he's not. He's, like, he's maybe gone he to... actually, like, literally went berserk. Well, then you look at you look at a, you look at other people in public life, even in the United States. You look at someone like Giuliani. You oh, say, what happened true, to him? True. I mean, completely bonkers. I mean, maybe there's uh, been or, something or, underwater or, since like 2014. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> a virus. Who knows? Well, <laughs> this has been. Do you? What do you think's going to happen? Let me ask you uh, that. What do you think's going to happen? happen? Oh, you know. Do you do you think that we will? Do you think there will be? Obviously, there has to be at some point. Yeah, some what is the what right? is the end game? Is the question right? Because yeah, I mean, it really. It seems to me the end game should be this. If, if, if this, if this. Hi there. Be a, if I were to... This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the Dishcast.
you'll be able to add it to your dishcast feed and never have this hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>